All right. That's enough socializing. Knock it off. We're not here to be friends. I'm just kidding. We are. <laughs> hey, so I can't tell you how excited I am for this weekend. Uh, Peter Pignon is a dear friend of mine and has been a huge blessing to my, my life, my wife's life, my whole family's life. And uh, I know that he's going to bless y'all. So come out. It's free of charge. Just come and listen to some wise, godly counsel. It's going to be amazing. It really will be a, a good time. We're also going to have some breakout sessions uh, in the afternoon after lunch. So you can come up and hear some of us staff people talk about stuff if you want. Um, and then we'll, we'll let you know what those sessions are tomorrow night. Cool? Or uh, not tomorrow night, Friday night. There you go. There it is. Dates are hard. You know what I mean? Anybody else having that kind of week? Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, I've been having a, a, a not fun time at home, to be perfectly honest. Um, so, my kids, right, are doing the homeschool thing, right? It, for those of you that don't have children uh, in elementary school. So, what's happening right now is... is the uh, San Angelo ISD gave us the option. They said, hey, you can, like, you can send your kids to school where they'll be locked in a room for eight hours and, and surrounded by other little germ pits, or you can keep them home, right? And, uh, and they can do online school. So my wife and I were like, let's, let's wait and see how the germ pit thing works out, right? And then, and then like, we'll, we'll just do the home option for the first little bit. So we're doing the home option. And let me tell you, I'm not cut out to be a teacher, Right? I'm just, that's not, that's not my thing. I have zero patience. I'm just like, here's a form. Just fill it out. Just do the homework. What's wrong with you? Right? Like, I don't know how to add. I'm like, what? You're four? Come on. You have fingers? Anyway. Um, but one of the, one of the really hard parts for me is that, like, I, I majored in history. Right? I got my bachelor's degree in history. And I am passionate about history. Right? If, if you ever ask me a question about history, just sit down, pour yourself a cup of coffee. It's going to take 30 minutes before I even get to the point. Right? You know what I'm saying? Right? It's like, hey, Scroggins, what about this thing in history? I'm like, well, actually, you know, and then it's like an hour, you know. Um, and I know this about myself. But my kids have, like, their social studies. They have their history portion, right? And my wife very wisely delegates that to me, right? And so we're, we're going through this thing, right? Um, where my kids are learning American history, right? Donald's learning Texas history. Uh, Finnegan is learning U.S. history, which is really cool because you can talk about some cool stuff. But do you all remember, like, you went through high school, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, right? And you learned history, but then you got to college and you learned history. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, you have that moment where you're sitting in that, like, that, you know, 100 level or 1,000 level whatever history class, and you kind of think for a moment, like, wait a second, are we the bad guys? You know what I'm talking about? Whereas, like, you learn about the westward expansion and the covered wagons and the Oregon Trail, and then you get to college and you learn about, like, the mass wholesale slaughter of the Native Americans. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, wait, we're the bad guys. You know what I mean? You know, you know what I mean. Like, well... Some of you do, right? Some of y'all are like on the receiving end of that. And you're like, finally, someone's admitting it. You know what I'm saying? But man, I have the hardest time with my kids because I just want to like go there, you know? But I can't, right? My son's like, hey, dad, what did Sam Houston do? And I was like, so many things. Like, well, how do I answer that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, hey, dad, tell me about Mirabeau Lamar. 
And we all know who he is, correct? The second president of the Republic of Texas, right? Yeah? There you go. There you go. I knew it. I knew it. But that, I had that, <laughs> I kind of had that same feeling as I was reading through and studying the parable that I'm going to preach about tonight. Is that at a, a certain point, after I had done enough reading and, and praying and just taken enough walks and sat alone in my office long enough to think and meditate about what the Lord was trying to say, I hit a point where I just went, wait a second, am I the baddie? Am I the bad guy? You know what I mean? So we're going to talk about the parable of the barren fig tree, okay? Um, and this is just a short little parable, and because it's only a couple of verses, I've included a couple others for context, because context is king. Y'all remember that, right? When we're studying the Bible, context is king, all right? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we have it up on the screen. And if you have a Gideon's Bible from the hotel room, it's page 1,837. That's not true at all. I just made that up. But All right. So Luke writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it, bear fruit, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, we are just so grateful to be able to gather and, and meet together um, when so many cannot. Lord, we ask that you would just step down off your throne and speak to us. Lord, we give you the right and the authority to change our hearts and minds to speak to us tonight, Lord, because you're our king and, and you can do that. So Lord, will you do that? We welcome you in. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, um, last time I preached, we talked about, remember the spiciness graph, all right? You all remember this? So, like, the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more spicy he gets in his parables, right? So, this one isn't like the last time I preached out of Luke, where he's, like, near peak spice, okay? This, he's just a little bit, right? He's not a habanero, he's a jalapeno. You know, he's like a serrano, you know what I'm talking about? Just a little, enough to kind of... You know, burn your tongue a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So that's about where Jesus is right now. Because remember, Luke is divided up and structured to mirror the Exodus story. Okay, so you have Jesus. He's hanging out and makes all his proclamations up in Galilee. And then he journeys and then gets to Jerusalem by chapter 19. 
right? And that's kind of how things are, are structured. So after about chapter 9, he goes on the journey, which is to mimic the Israelites in the wilderness. And then he goes in Jerusalem, which kind of makes you, is supposed to make you think of like us entering the promised land, because the promised land is Jesus' forgiveness on the cross. Anyway, you know what I'm saying, right? Amen. Okay. So here we are in chapter 13. So we know we're kind of at the beginning of this, you know, right before he takes off with the spiciness here, right? So Jesus is around a third of the way into his journey towards Jerusalem, right? And what, what Jesus is, is doing along the way is he's teaching, right? And, and there's groups of people that are traveling with him, right? And so um, what Jesus is beginning to do as he's teaching along this way is he's starting to kind of show that through his teaching, he's trying to show us that like we've kind of missed the point. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, the way that you guys have been thinking about the kingdom or the gospel, the way you've been, you've been uh, thinking about your religion, it, you've kind of missed the point of all this, right? And so he, he does this by illustrating stories like the Good Samaritan, right? We know that parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Or uh, when he teaches the disciples how to pray, right? He's like, no, the way you've been praying isn't right. This is how you do it, okay? Or when he... When, he visits the house of Lazarus, right? And then you have Mary and Martha. And Martha's like doing all the work to be a good hostess. And Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And he's like, no, Mary actually has it right. You see, he's going through and he's like deconstructing all of these misconceptions that, that everyone had about the kingdom of God and his role in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And then by the time you hit chapter 12, where Jesus has this really long discourse, it's like just a whole lot of him talking, and if you're paying attention, you'll see that a lot of that mirrors what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? So that tells me that Jesus is repeating a lot of things, right? Do you know what the, cost, like the best way of, uh, of learning is? Like there's three ways to really get people to remember things, okay? The first one is repetition. The second one is repetition, and the third one is repetition, okay? So Jesus is repeating himself a lot here. Does that make sense? Right, and so by the time we round the corner and we're entering like chapter 13, Jesus is really beginning to lay the Pharisees. Right at the end of chapter 12, he's just like letting them have it. And one of the Pharisees very quickly realizes, hey, if you say that, Jesus, you're hurting our feelings. And he's like, uh-huh, go on. Right? And the message that he's, he's sending is that the Pharisees aren't that great. By the time we hit chapter 13, what he's saying is the Pharisees just aren't that great. Now put yourself in the mindset of, of one of the contemporaries at that time. The Pharisees were the best of the best. If anybody was going to heaven, it was them. Right? Because they had success right? They were financially blessed. They were held in high esteem by everyone around them, right? It seemed whatever they wanted to do succeeded. And so they were supposed to be the best among us. But Jesus is like, no, they don't know anything. Doesn't that kind of scare you? Imagine how that person felt listening, going like, if the Pharisee doesn't get into heaven, who does? Right? And what we see actually in the first nine verses of chapter 13 here is in this context, we almost see a microcosm of the entire 
problem with humanity in the Bible. Right? And, and you'll see as I go on, right? So the first thing that we have to address is like the weird part at the beginning. We're, we're talking about somebody being killed and having blood mingled with sacrifices. What was that all about, okay? So what was that all about? Well, they, there was a region called Galilee, as I'm sure some of you know, right? And that was Jesus' hometown. But there was also a group called the Galileans, right? And they were a radical kind of political group that was like all about having Israel be a free kingdom again. Right? They were just pissed about the Roman authorities. They're like, I ain't living under the heel of no man, right? And so they're like, make Israel great again, okay? And that's what they're doing, right? And so what they did is they openly rebelled against Rome. And if you have studied history at all, you know that Rome does not deal well with that, right? They're, they're not exactly kind. You know, it's not like Mr. Rogers, and he's like, well, friend, tell me about your anger. No, the Romans were just like, stab, 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 Right? And so that's what the Romans did. But Pilate, Pontius Pilate, wasn't exactly tactful, right? And so he thought the best way to get these guys is when they're sacrificing at their temple. So he sent his troops in to kill the Galilean rebels while they were sacrificing at the altar. And he slaughtered them. Right? And so tragedy befell these Galileans because of their own foolish choices. You see that? They made a choice to rebel against the most powerful empire in human history. And they died for it. But the crazy thing is, like, in their eyes, they were pretty justified. In fact, they could look at the Bible and see reason why they would believe that God was on their side. But to everyone else looking at them, their blood being mingled with the sacrifices meant that they were cursed. The way that they interpreted that event was, man, God must be really mad at them. Look at how God is punishing them. How do you know somebody's cursed? They get sacrificed. They get killed while they're trying to make a sacrifice. You see that? So the population could look at them and say, they rebelled against God's intended and proper foreordained order, and they were punished for it. And that's why they're talking to Jesus, and Jesus responds with, do you think they were worse than everyone else? Because they did think that they were worse than everyone else. Right? And then Jesus goes on and he talks about the Tower of Siloam. Right? Which was kind of a, a local event in Jerusalem. There was a section called Siloam. Uh, you may remember from other parts of uh, Matthew's gospel. I want to say the Pool of Siloam. Right? Well, there was a tower there and it fell over and killed 18 people. Right? See, in here, the people that were killed by the Tower of Siloam, tragedy befell them because of chance. It wasn't anything that they had done. This was just a random tragic event. And yet, still, everyone, the population, would look at them and say they must be out of favor with God. Because look at the tra tragedy that befell them. Does that make sense? Because they're looking at the Pharisees and saying everything's going great for them, so God must have blessed them. 
They must be blessed by God. And then I look at this group over here where everything's going wrong. They're being, they're being murdered in the temple. Towers are falling on them. God must be cursing them. And why do I say this, right? How can I say this? Well, if we look, flip our Bibles over to John chapter 9, and you don't, I mean, have to, but you can if you want to, right? Jesus heals this blind guy, right? And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then the Pharisees later, like at the end of the chapter, the Pharisees say, to the blind guy that had just been cured, they say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Do you see that? Tragedy happened to the blind guy because he was cursed by God. So, it was kind of in the air at that time, in the culture, the belief that if something bad happens to you, it is because you have sinned or your parents have sinned or God just doesn't favor you. So, the other side of that coin is nothing bad has happened to me, so I must be okay with God. Right? And if you analyze that, what you wind up is, with is, is a non-religious version of the pharisaical attitude. Thank you, God, that I am not like this publican, this tax collector. Do you see that? Thank you, God, I'm not like those rebellious Galileans. Thank you, God, you didn't make me to have a tower fall on me, said the Pharisee. And the gall of the population, the gall of the crowd to ask Jesus about these people, after he had just spent so much time walking with them and talking with them and teaching them and showing them that the Pharisees weren't that great, they adopted the very attitude of the thing that he was saying was terrible. So where did they go wrong? They drew lines for themselves between who was blessed and who was cursed by God. They drew lines by themselves between who was blessed and who was cursed by God. So, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit in Genesis chapter 3, what was the name of the tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see how the very thing that this crowd was talking about, the very issues they brought up point all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to that first sin where we sit on God's throne and decide who is deserving of blessing and who is deserving of cursing. That tower fell on them. They must have been cursed. I have decided that in my heart. I'm blessed, they are not. Imagine the anger that Jesus must have felt. I used to read the Gospels, and, and especially in the Gospel of Mark, I was always confused why Jesus was like exasperated. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Have you read through the Gospel of Mark? It seems like every other sentence, he's like, how much longer do I have to deal with you people? 
right? And I didn't get it for the longest time, but after reading this, I think I do. They just didn't get it. I think it's also interesting that after the fall of man, after man rebelled in the garden and ate that fruit, the next thing they do is run to a fig tree to cover themselves. So what the Bible does is it'll introduce an idea. And then later, as time goes on, they'll build with that idea, they'll play with that idea, develop that idea into almost a theme. Right? Like, if you ever hear, like you're watching a movie and you hear music go bump ba da dum 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 da da dum 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 da da dum dum what do you think's gonna happen? Right? Like Somebody's going to be charging down a hill on a horse. Somebody's going to be flying in on, like, an airplane. Or there's going to be Vikings coming in, like, on a ship, right? Like, whenever you hear that theme, right? The Bible does something similar like that. And it's doing it here with the fig tree. Why did Jesus use a fig tree as a parable? Because the first thing that man and woman, Adam and Eve, went for to cover their sin after they rebelled against God was fig leaves. And from that point forward through the Bible, you see the fig constantly represented as the religious action of man to compensate for his sin. Does that make sense? So Jesus, seeing them start to try and cover themselves with fig leaves, start to try and sit on God's throne and say who was cursed and who was blessed, right? Jesus tells a fable a parable about what kind of tree? A fig tree. They wanted Jesus to help them draw lines between the good people and the bad people, but he refused. He didn't fall into that trap. Instead, he tells us a story about a fig tree that has no fruit. Because the religion that you get to draw lines between good and bad is a fruitless religion. And forgive me for saying this, or don't, but I'm going to say it. There are some flavors of Christianity that have entire theological systems built around the idea of drawing lines between who is blessed by God and who is cursed by God. Also of note is in this moment, Jesus had the perfect opportunity to address what philosophers call the problem of pain, right? Y'all are in college. You've talked to people on the university campus. You've heard this one, right? If God is good, why do bad things happen? The problem of pain. I mean, it would have saved us a lot of trouble if Jesus had answered that, wouldn't it? Right? But he doesn't answer it. He sidesteps it. See, the crowd was trying to use these events, the Galileans and the Tower of Siloam collapse, they were trying to use the, these events to infer what the character of God was like. But Jesus flips the script, and he uses the moment as a mirror to infer what their hearts are like. And what... Do we find in our hearts? 
But that old, old sin of pride, just trying to sit on God's throne and decide for ourselves who's blessed and who's cursed. So, the temptation of reading this parable is to insert yourself into the parable, right? We hear about the, there's the, the, the master of the vineyard, right? And then there's the, the, the vineyard master, the husbandman, if I can use that word, I guess, right? And we all think of ourselves as the husbandman, right? And we're like, oh yeah, I'm that person to all my friends that don't know Jesus or my friends that don't walk with Jesus the right way. And, and I'm like, God, don't cut them down. Let me dig around it and fertilize it. But do you see what you've done? You just drew a line. I'm good. They're bad. And that's when I had that moment. Wait a second. Am I the baddie? The temptation is to look at other people's lives and point out the barren branches. I want you all to hear me. The temptation is to look at other people's lives and point out the fruitless branches. And it's really easy to do. Because in some people's lives, the emperor has no clothes. But what Jesus is doing is he's holding this up as a mirror and asking us to look at our own branches. That's why the most common phrase that he repeats in this section is the word repent. 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 But repent of what? Repent of that place of judgment. Repent of having the arrogance to decide for God what is good and what is evil. Who is blessed and who is cursed. Because Jesus says repeatedly in the parable, we are all like those tragic figures. All of our branches are barren. We've tried religion, and it's fruitless. Did y'all catch that? How many years have you tried to draw lines in different places in your life? Are you happier for it? I remember one of my best friends, before he knew Jesus, uh, we hung out with him all the time, played soccer. He's one of my best friends now. But I remember we were talking with them, and we were talking about Jesus and the Bible and religion, of course, and he was like, well, you know, I kind of have my own idea of what's right and wrong, you know, and I, I do that. And one of my friends, Evan, he just point blank asked him, well, do you ever break it? Do you understand? How many times have you drew the line in your mind or in your heart of this is what my morality is, I will never cross this line, and then you've crossed it? What will you do then? How do you repay that transgression? How do you make amends 
for that sin. And then you're like Lady Macbeth, out, out, ye spot. And the bloodstain won't leave your hands. Because your branches are barren too. There's no fruit on them. And that sounds really hopeless. But as the band comes up, here's the good news. The parables are not about you. The parables are about Jesus. Jesus is telling parables to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like and what his role in the kingdom is, not what your role is. So in the parable of the barren fig tree, where do you, where do you fit in? You're the fig tree. You are fruitless. And God has been coming around you for three years saying, where's the fruit? But Jesus is the husbandman. Jesus is the gardener. And he looks at us and he says, I'm not giving up yet. Master, give me one more year. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Until you repent and give up your right of drawing lines of good and bad, blessed and cursed, and allow God to do that, you will never have fruit. The only way to bear fruit is to allow Jesus to grow you, to surrender your life. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he that remain in me shall bear much fruit. So, let us focus on Jesus. Let us look to him. So here's what we need to do. Maybe. I think so. I think there's a lot of us that maybe you were like me and you just kind of realized that you were the bad guy in the story. And if that's the case, you're not just a tragic figure, you're a rebel. You understand that? You're not just someone making a mistake. You're someone that has aggressively taken up arms against the king of the universe. The good king of the universe. The one that sends rain on people that hate him and rain on people that love him. The one that draws the lines where they should be drawn between the proud and the humble. So which side of that line are you on? If you are looking at other people's lives and pointing out the barrenness of their branches, I'm afraid to tell you you're on the wrong side of the line. And that is what Jesus is talking about. Repent. Give up the throne of your heart and put the proper king on it. Do you understand? Some of you in here have crossed lines that you drew and you swore you'd never cross. 
What will you do to make amends for that? The only thing that you can do is say sorry to Jesus. Repent. Do you know what that word means? In Greek, the word repent is metanoia, right? Meta, outside of. Noia, your mind. It literally means to go out of your mind. It means a complete an irrevocable change of your mind to decide to never go back to what you were before. That's what Jesus is saying. Repent. Your branches are barren. So Pam and Jonathan are going to lead us in a couple songs. And I want everyone to take some time to pray. Lord, which side of your line am I on? Lord, do you look at my branches and find fruit? And depending on how you answer that question, you can stand and sing and you can worship because hallelujah, the Lord is good. Or maybe you need to come to the front, socially distanced, spaced out, all that stuff. Get on your knees.